0: Friends, we are indeed in our Bibles in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, that is Saul. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what a beautiful description. May that be true of us, that we as a church body, we as fellow churches Uh, throughout the city who have gathered in worship this morning, might even now be walking in the fear of you and the comfort of the Spirit, so that we too might multiply, grow wide, grow deep into the image of your Son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we studied last week this dramatic story of Saul converting, he becomes a Christian, and now this week we start to hear about Saul growing in his faith, what it looks like for him to begin to mature and to grow up into his salvation. Now Saul, when he begins his serious letter writing about 20 years later, he's going to look back on this and he's going to dub these things justification and sanctification. This is the process of me coming to faith, this is the process of me growing up in my faith. So I want to define those two carefully this morning, because then we're going to see this process of sanctification in Saul's life. Justification is a free gift from God. It's God's gracious work to do two things. He takes our sin from us, our guilt and our shame from us, and he gives us Christ's righteousness. That's all an act of God. That all happens at our salvation. We are declared righteous in his sight. It is a pure gift from him. The next step is sanctification, and really you have a biblical definition and an unbiblical definition of sanctification. Because I think sometimes we have heard this unbiblical idea that God does the justification part and we do the sanctification part, right? Like God gets the thing going, but then we carry it on and complete it. Sanctification is our work to do, and it kind of sounds like a varsity squad, like the coach put you here, but you better earn your keep day in and day out that you belong here. And that's how some of us are walking around in our sanctification, hoping that the coach is impressed. But that's not biblical sanctification. Justification is a gift from God. Sanctification is a gift from God. It is God's gracious work, his Holy Spirit filling us, as Paul says, to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is the one infusing inside of us to grow us up into this sanctification and into this maturity. It's not a varsity squad. It's more like a family. You get in by grace. You stay here every day by grace. You tie in that grace. All of it is God's perfect, kind, lavish grace. That's the beauty of the gospel to us. And so we're going to get to see, as we saw justification last week, we're going to get to see the outworking of this sanctification in Saul's life as he dies, as the confession says, more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. And I want us to see two things about sanctification in Saul's life, which translate to our lives. Number one, God gives his flourishing where we have failed. God is going to bring this beautiful flourishing where we have failed. And number two, God is going to give strength where we are weak. That's what he's going to do in this process. So number one, God gives flourishing where we have failed. God often writes his best conversion stories in the places that we have grieved and resisted him most. You know that. You've seen that, that God writes these beautiful stories in the places of the most brokenness. Now I'm a sucker for these kind of testimonies and I don't just mean the elaborate like I used to party and do drugs and hang out with my friends kind of testimonies. I mean the ones that highlight that in the place I resisted God most, that's the place that he has brought the most change in me. It's the story of the hard-hearted husband who in Christ is learning to say, I'm sorry. It's the story of the apathetic, aimless youth who had no direction and then Christ in her salvation lights a fire under her and she lives her life for Jesus. It's Zacchaeus, a man who has made an idol out of his money, served it and was enslaved by it and at his conversion, that is the very place that God brings his glory by freeing him from this stranglehold to give his money away generously. Scripture confirms this very thing, that it is precisely in the places where we have failed and struggled that God plans to bring his greatest growth. I'm thinking about passages like Romans 6.19, which says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." You used to use your members, that is your hands and your feet and your mind and your mouth, for sin. Those very same members now in Christ are being used for good, godly work. Ephesians 4.28 gives just a very simple example of this. Paul says to the church in Ephesus that actually struggled with this, Let not let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Isn't that amazing? A man who used to steal with his hands now is using his hands to work hard at a job, so that he has extra, so that he can share with somebody else. It's not just my heart that's being converted, it's my hands too. that God is bringing this incredible work at the very place that I was most resisting and running from him. God loves to do that, loves to bring that flourishing where we have failed. Now let's see this in Saul's life because it happens in our passage in two dramatic places. Saul goes from persecuting the disciples to joining the disciples, that's one of them. And then Saul also goes from denying Jesus to proclaiming Jesus. Both of those, I mean, stand to the fore in the change that God is bringing in Saul. So number one, he goes from persecuting Christians to joining them. And the change here is just dramatic in this chapter. Verse one says that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But by verse 19, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 13, Ananias says, there's no way I'm gonna go and meet Saul. But by verse 17, he walks in the house and greets him as brother. He's a family member. Verse 26, a new group of disciples in Jerusalem, when he shows up there, they're afraid of him and don't want anything to do with him. But by verse 28, he went in and out among them and we're just rattling off quick references here but I assure you that this was much harder than it looked this was not cute and quaint he was outside the disciples now he's inside the disciples this was way harder than it looked and sanctification always is we're always thinking it's easier for somebody else than it is for us We're always assuming if I had that life, if I had that wife, if I had that house, if I had that car, sanctification would be easier for me, but is not. It reminds me of this cross that sweet John built, and now that he's out of the building, I can say, when he said I'm building a cross, I said, great, let's have it by next week. And he said, brother, I'm trying to finish this in 2021. There are 48 surfaces to this thing, or whatever he said. And he made a bunch of crooked prototypes, and he gave me one. He said, this crooked cross reminds me of you. Take this and, and remember me by it. <laughs> it's harder than it looks. And so all that we just brush by is Saul, a man who had done great and grievous harm to the church. He shows up in Jerusalem, and he was the one who gave approval to murder Stephen. And Stephen's family members are in the church. And he's the one that gave approval for dragging off men and women to prison. And those family members are in the church. And he was the one that started a persecution that made people run from Jerusalem. That's all Saul's faults. And when you show up at synagogue on Saturday or Sunday and Saul is sitting right here, you've got a couple of rows from him, a man whose mom is in prison because of that man. And I know that Saul came to faith and all, but that doesn't mean that my mom gets out of jail. And I know I'm supposed to be happy for him, but honestly I'm not, and I wish he wasn't here. And Saul kind of scans the crowd and locks eyes with the young man, and waves of shame and guilt come over him. And he tries to greet him after the worship service, and the kid wants nothing to do with him. This is hard sanctification work to join people together. I'm convinced that one of God's best sanctification strategies is to put people together in a church family who don't like each other, who have hurt each other, who have said offensive things or who have not paid particular attention to you and he knits us together in close quarters to worship and live this life of sanctification together. Don't look now. All eyes on me. There are people close to you. You try to sit away on your side of the room but they ended up on your side of the room because someone was sitting in their seat. You do not like them. You do not want to be with them. You're thinking about going to a different church where they're not, but lo and behold, you're gonna find other people you don't like at that church. God has a plan for that. God is going to use that in my life and in your life that we will learn to do this together. That's God's sanctifying work. Amen. And it is precisely the place that Saul struggled most, sinned, failed is the very place God presses in. He doesn't say, oh, you struggle with people. Well, let me give you sobriety. That's a win for you. No, he says, in the place that you struggled, that's where I bring fruit. That's a beautiful thing. Second place you see that is that Saul went about denying Jesus. And then, of course, dramatically, he goes about proclaiming Jesus. I mean, Saul gets shot out of an evangelistic canon in verse 20. He's newly converted And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Now remember that Saul had been in Jerusalem. He got letters from the chief priest to go arrest people in Damascus. He gets converted on the way. When he shows up to Damascus, I'm assuming those letters never made it to the synagogues. But instead Saul brought a very different message. He began preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Well, then they tried to kill him and he had to run and come back to Jerusalem Check out God's redemptive move in Jerusalem. You can't make this stuff up. In verse 28 and 29, it says that Saul went back to that city to preach to the Hellenists. Okay, So we know that the Hellenists were Jews, but they were culturally Greek. They spoke Greek. That's who Saul is preaching to who was the last person in our Bibles to street corner preach to the Jerusalem Hellenists? It was Stephen, right? And who was the last person to be seen over Stephen's dead body for preaching to the Jerusalem Hellenists? It was Saul. And who takes Stephen's place To preach to this same crowd, is it not Stephen's murderer, Saul? Saul picks up Stephen's ministry exactly where Saul ended Stephen's ministry. That's incredible. I'm reading a book on 19th century British military history, and it's not even as exciting as it sounds. But there's this incredible idea in that book where the military was divided into units and every unit had a flag, much like you would have seen in the Civil War, and that flag was the lifeblood of the unit that identified you on the battlefield. That was your pride and your joy. That was your rallying point. You held dear to that flag for your unit and you kept it safe. And under no circumstances at all would you leave your flag on the battlefield if you were still living. And there is scene after scene after scene of a unit charging to enemy lines and the flag bearer falling and dropping that flag on the battlefield. And the next soldier comes up behind and picks that up and runs forward. And he's struck down and falls and the flag drops. And the next man behind him picks up that flag and continues to charge so that the entire unit knows where they are going and they follow hard after that flag and they defeat the enemy. That's exactly what's happening here in this passage. When God converted Stephen, he said, I want you to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. And that led him immediately to the street corners in Jerusalem to preach the gospel to a hostile crowd. And it was the will of God that Stephen's ministry would be very short and that cross would be dropped on that street corner. Only then to be picked up by the next soldier in line, Saul, whom God had ordained to pick that cross up at that very street corner and take it forward to do his will. That's the majesty of the providence of God. God didn't do that because he needed Saul. God didn't do that because his name was in jeopardy. God didn't do that because there was no other way to fulfill his great commission. God did that because he writes these incredible stories where he says in the very place that you have fallen most and resisted me most, the greatest moment of your shame, to do that to my people, that's the moment I shine my glory. You pick up that cross that you made fall and you take it. That's what God does in us. Now, Christian, I wonder the places where God has found us in our failing and in our resistance and in our running from him, and he designs to do his most beautiful work. Where are the places that I think now, before I came to Christ and even in my Christian walk, where I most resist, reject, push Christ away? those embarrassing, those shameful places. I don't even want to speak in this room before other people. What are those things? What are those places? Those deepest parts in our life are the places that the Holy Spirit is seeping into now. They're the place that Christ wants to claim allegiance in. They're the places that he wants to change us the most. Let him do his work. Open your heart to him and to each other and let him do his work. Don't try to win sanctification in the places you're already good at, right? If you're already a gentle and a nice person, don't even say, praise God, I'm a gentle and a nice person. Man, you were that way before you came to faith. But you were a liar before you came to faith. That's what I want to see. I want to see a truth teller because now we're giving glory to God. Oh, you were a great leader before you came to faith and you knew how to give orders and and make things happen. Don't boast in that in the kingdom. You were lustful. You looked at pornography and you still do in your Christian walk. Let that be the place that God's glory shines and lifts you out of that abyss and begins to do this slow, steady work, one step forward, two steps back, so that you boast in your weakness and God himself gets the glory. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, right? Right? He says, I'm gonna pull this church to myself. They're gonna do these good deeds. The world is gonna watch them and they're going to give glory to God. Why would they give glory to God if we are known for the things that we were already good at before we came to faith? There's nothing to give glory for. But if you see a dramatic change in a person that you once knew before Christ, that's God glorifying. I know this dude over here that was nasty and mean-spirited and I couldn't stand being around him, and he became a Christian, and lo and behold, the next day, he was nasty and mean-spirited, and I didn't want to be around him, but a year later, he was a little less nasty and mean-spirited, and I didn't mind being around him, and two years later, he came up to me and said something nice, and now I know there is a God, because I've seen him work, and that's tremendous. Those are the, the crooked, wayward, beautiful, majestic redemptive stories Jesus Christ, today. Let him write him and celebrate together what he is doing. Now, I want to leave us there on a high note of God taking us from low places and making us flourish where we fail. But there's another point about sanctification this year that I just want to hit on very, very briefly. Because we might be watching Saul's sanctification and Luke just tells it in a half chapter of all this like great victory And we might see what God does to Saul, and then we might look at our lives and say, you know, I'm just not producing that much righteousness. Like, I'm falling behind in real, visible righteousness in places that I am most weak. And when people meet David, and they knew the old David, who was proud and lustful and greedy and selfish, and they see me today, and not much has changed, they think, Maybe there isn't a God. I thought there was when I saw that other kid, but maybe there's not because the fruit just looks so sparse. If that's you this morning thinking about how little you have to show for your Christian life, I want you to turn with me briefly to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is wild because Paul is going to write in this letter about the scene that happened at Damascus. What looked really cool to us, to Paul, was incredibly embarrassing. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 and onward. Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness, okay? I'm going to tell you about things that are embarrassing. This is testimonial time. This is confession time for Paul. He says, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, hang on a minute. When I read that story in Acts, that was a pretty cool story, right? I mean, Paul is there preaching the gospel people are after him, and and he escapes by the skin of his teeth and can live on to boast about that. I thought that was a pretty awesome story. Paul is writing about that 20 years later in 2 Corinthians, and he still can't get past how embarrassed he was for his cowardice. Jesus told him to go and preach the gospel and suffer But instead, Paul, the first sign of danger, he jumps into a fish basket at night, gets out of the city, never comes back, and he leaves the Christians there behind. Paul wasn't scaling walls for Jesus, kicking butt and taking names like we thought he was going to do at his commission. Instead, he was slinking down a wall into the darkness, smelling like fish, and leaving his friends to fend for themselves. That was it deeply, mortifyingly, embarrassing time for the apostle. And he admits that to a church he's struggling with because he's going to make a point in the next chapter, just like God does his greatest flourishing where we have failed, so God shows his greatest strength where we are weak. It's that story at Damascus that happens in Acts 19 that gets us to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and these very familiar words. He says, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friend, Jesus doesn't save strong people to make them stronger. And Jesus doesn't save rich people to make them richer. And he doesn't save healthy people to make them more healthy. And he certainly doesn't save righteous people to add an ounce of righteousness to the righteousness they already had. This is God's glory. When you feel what is not in your sanctification, when you feel the failure of this road to maturity in Christ, when you feel the failure of your besetting weakness and sin that so easily entangles, that is the place where you are weak, where Christ is strong, where he will do his best, most glorifying work. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, This is hard and it's paradoxical and it's something our culture is embarrassed by to truly admit and boast, not in mess-ups and mistakes, but in weakness, in failure, in shame, and in guilt. To know that we are not, before we came to Christ, and to know that we are not in Christ except for the good and the gracious work you do in and through us. I pray, Lord, that instead of boasting in my strength this week and what I've already been good at and continue to be good at, I would find the places where I am weak and failing and you are strong, and that would be my boast. Let that be true of me and this family we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.